0: Community Radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. Welcome Welcome to to Unemployed Unemployed Workers Workers Fight Back. Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer
1: Show. Between 5.30 and 6.30 p.m.
0: Here here on 3CR Community Community Radio.
1: Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions
0: for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone everyone in our our community has value. Kevin, hello. We're back to talk about more macroeconomics because it's such a fun thing to do.
1: Hi Anne, how are you doing? This week it's the second Friday of the month. We've been doing the second and the fourth Friday of the month.
0: I want you to do something... And I want you to imagine a circle. So just draw a circle in your head. Circle's there. Now I want you to draw another circle that's a smaller circle, and I want you to put it inside the circle that you already drew.
1: Okay, so I've got my small circle inside the big circle. What's next?
0: Now I'm going to give you two labels, Mm -hmm. and you get to choose which label you put on which circle. Okay. So one of the labels says economy, Mm -hmm. and one of the labels says society. Mm-hmm. Now, which label are you going to put on which circle?
1: Well, I'd put society on the big circle and economy on the small circle because the economy should be part of how society works.
0: Bingo. That puts you in one camp. If you were to reverse those labels yeah. and you had the big label called economy and the little lab- in the little circle called society, you'd be a neoliberal.
1: Bloody I was just about to say that. You'd be, yeah. <laughs> And, and this is the point, we've been talking about this and we can rave about this, but one of the things that I'm really trying to get my teeth into about this whole thing is that the economy is supposed to be a reflection of society and what's happened with the neoliberal agenda, well, if it's a reflection of society, it reflects a society which doesn't work, which has all the power balance wrong and turns most of us into these these uh, servants, these uh, production units. So we're all we've all become production units thinking that we're serving the economy when it's supposed to be the other way around.
0: I find it really helpful if I'm trying to navigate through all these economic discussions and people are throwing things around and I try and listen for which circle they've labelled with which thing because that is the fundamental starting point. If you think that the little circle is society and the big circle is the economy, you think the economy is the world that we're in and it's just there, naturally there, And the best thing that society can do, which includes the government, is to stay out of the way of the economy, let the economy do its natural thing. And in that case, you're going to want to do things like decrease the welfare system because you're going to think that that's just messing around in the natural economy or the natural market. And you're going to want to do things like impose austerity. And you're going to want to do things like privatize the national goods and the public goods. If you think back to the story of the king, you can see very clearly how that monetary system was a creation of people. It wasn't just some natural thing floating around. It was something we created and we can make decisions around it.
1: Now, I was reading about this neoliberal label that we're talking about. We use it all the time, and people need to understand what we mean by neoliberalism. And by definition, it's when you put the individual first. And a very basic description of neoliberalism is that the individual needs to be unencumbered by regulation and by government to reach their full economic potential. And when the individual reaches their full economic potential, they will share that with the community. The wealth will trickle down through the economy. One thing that they did that was quite clever, and this program of neoliberalism was developed through the 40s and 50s and 60s, I think. They used the term at the beginning, and then they dropped the term. They ceased to give their ideology a name. And in so doing, it became that the ideology was natural; mm. that it had no name, Sneaky. and it's just the natural way in which people operated. And so that's how we have this misconception that uh, the economy is just natural, and, and we have to work within it because it's like a force of nature. It's not; it's it's constructed.
0: Well, if you go back to the two circles, and you're thinking that the big circle is labeled economy, which kind of equals market, and you're thinking that the little circle inside that is labeled society. What you're thinking is that that big circle with market, what is the market? It's a bunch of individuals doing their thing. And if they're all left to do their own thing, they're all going to somehow combine to make what we need. And I've heard people say of the neoliberal point of view that this market is like a information processor. So that's what was going on back in the 1950s. They're all excited about the new kinds of computing and they're all into cybernetics and they're all into sort of these information processing devices. And so they were using that as an image to understand things. And so somebody came up with the idea that the economy or the market is like an information processor and all the individuals are like the little bits and bytes of this processor. And if you leave the individuals to do their own thing, then it'll all kind of come out in the wash that this will be your perfectly functioning market.
1: There's all these concepts about how you should just let individuals and the market dictate how interaction between human beings works. But it's a real survival of the, the, not not even the fittest, it's survival of the meanest, nastiest, you know, (laughs) greediest.
0: This idea that you let individuals do their thing which then also just happens to mean that you don't let the government do its thing, also just happens to suit certain individuals very well. And those would be the individuals who are very good at taking the resources of the nation and hanging on to them for themselves.
1: It's called uh, maximising your position, Uh, Anne. I've I've, uh, (laughs) I've, I've come across this before. Yes, when I uh, split it with my previous partner. Uh, (laughs)
0: Oh, folks, this is going to turn into a therapy session in a minute.
1: But when you start operating that way, maximising your position, um, inevitably it means uh, minimising somebody else's. And it doesn't have to be that way, but that's that's the way this system works.
0: So what we've learned is if you go through a relation breakup, basically your partner turns into a neoliberal. <laughs>
1: Possibly, possibly. So the neoliberal experiment ends up with a very polarized society with a select few having the vast bulk of the the share of the wealth and an increasing pile of people who miss out. We keep on saying that the Western world is, is becoming wealthier and wealthier, and yet we've got more and more homeless people. How does that work? The 60s and the 70s, apparently when we weren't as wealthy as we are now, none of this existed. Homeless people were rare. And now, now we're with this incredibly successful, wealthy Western country, we, we don't look after our aging population. We don't look after our young population. We just cast people to the side. And we do it with this kind of washing our conscience by saying, oh, no, it's important that I reach my full potential. Therefore, I don't have to worry about any of these people because my job is to just to be a greedy bastard so that I can trickle down my wealth to the rest of the community. It's rubbish.
0: It's like this whole mantra of individualism married with the monetarists and turning into this neoliberal regime that we're all living in. And we all know we're not benefiting from it. And like you say, we're not looking after our people and we're not looking after our environment. But there's a way of understanding how we can get to a different way of doing things.
1: And I think we should talk about that very soon. But first of all, we need to have a break and listen to some music.
2: You're listening to 3CR
0: 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au.
1: Okay, so that was Mining Lisa, the band I'm going to feature this week. Mining Lisa, local band, fantastic band. And that song was Take You Out off one of their albums. I think they've only got one album. They're, they're pretty, um, pretty new. We've had some pretty heavy-hitting guests. Last time around, we had Bill Mitchell and the guy is a walking brainiac. Man, oh, man, you've got to concentrate. And the show before that, we had Stephen Hale, who, again, is not short of neurons in the uh, upstairs department. And when you're listening to these guys, it can be pretty draining. So what we're going to do this week is we're going to try and explain what the hell it was that they said.
0: We've had the heavy hitters, Kevin.
1: Now we have to interpret for ourselves (laughs) and for everybody else.
0: That brings me to thinking about something that Stephen Hale said. It's really stuck with me when he said that when we first went into lockdown, and we had all those long lines outside of Centrelink of people who were being just economists, they shed, <laughs> they were being shed from the private labour market and into the unemployment queues. Stephen Hale said that didn't need to happen. Now, isn't that just amazing that someone knows enough to know that you didn't have to stress out thousands and thousands of people like that? And I was thinking about what must it be like to be a macroeconomist and you're walking down the street and you're walking along and you turn the corner. And you see this queue of people outside of Centrelink. If you're a macroeconomist, what you do is you think to yourself and you go, hmm, their automatic stabilizers aren't working very well, are they? (laughs) (laughs) And so when you live in the headspace of a macroeconomist, you start to understand what's going on. And that understanding really helps you to see what's possible and where we could be doing better.
1: There's a lot of confusion about the discussion about the debt. And so we're talking about um, all the money that the government has spent just recently with this $200 billion program to fund the national wage and childcare and, and all this sorts of stuff. All the commentators are worried about the debt. All the journalists and politicians are saying, oh, we're going to have this debt. And they're talking about bonds. And I really think we need to unpack that and explain in simple layman's terms the misunderstanding that exists uh, with government bonds and government debt
0: you just have to say that word debt and you want to run around screaming (laughs) help the debt are you scared of the debt Kevin
1: no not at all because now I understand it I've had Bill Mitchell and Stephen Hale explain it to me and these guys do know what they're talking about and I sat there and my brain fried and 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 I think there's some connections were made and now I have I think I have a basic understanding of it (laughs) (laughs) And <laughs> and I, I, I want to share. I want to share this this new knowledge with everybody because it's um it's quite remarkable.
0: You're going to go running through the streets, aren't you?
1: There's this report that's come out, Anne, from a, a mob called Per Capita. Some facts about debt, and it was a good read. I enjoyed this read. Some facts
0: about debt didn't give you nightmares, huh?
1: Well, it was pretty short and pretty straightforward, and, and that's what we're trying to do is is keep things simple.
0: Debt is on everyone's lips now because we've just seen the government spend its billions and billions and billions of dollars helping to deal with the coronavirus lockdown. And so now people are wanting to know, well, what does that mean for me, all that spending that the government's just done? And the word debt is getting thrown around. Think tanks like Per Capita are wanting to help people understand what's going on. And they've gone a long way to doing that with this document of theirs which you can find online at percapita.org.au. And it's called Some Facts About Debt, a per capita discussion paper. And the authors are Emma Dawson and Matthew Lloyd-Cape. So how about we have a little trek through this document, Kevin?
1: So what they do is they say they're, there are all these myths and, and then they, they bust them apart. So the first one that they talk about, they say, myth, Australian public debt is very high. And then they say, fact, by global standards, Australia public debt is very low. General government net debt as percentage of GDP for Australia compared to the rest of the world. Australia does not have a very large public debt. The worst, the worst one there is Japan.
0: Yeah, and how about that? And they're not experiencing outrageous inflation. In fact, their standard of living isn't too bad. So I would say that you wouldn't even look at comparing the debts of different countries to figure out how well they're doing economically. And in a way, they're not relevant numbers because it doesn't mean that you're doing better if your debt's low and it doesn't mean you're doing worse if your debt's bigger.
1: Now, when we talk about debt, the technical term for debt when we're talking about public debt is that it's an accumulation of the deficits that the governments have run over time. So it's a technical accounting term and it's different to what we in the, in the private sector call debt. If I'm in debt, I owe somebody some money. But if the government is in debt, it just means that they've been running deficits and they don't actually owe money to anyone. It's just currency creation. Essentially, what they're saying is that the government has been creating more currency than it's been collecting in taxes. And that is technically called their debt, but they don't have to pay it back. So it's not much of a debt.
0: You really want to know whether you're talking about the debt of the currency issuer or the debt of a currency user. And sometimes, interestingly enough, a government, even a federal government, can be a currency user. And in that case, they are going to worry about their debt. Here's a quiz question for you, Kevin. Can you give me an example of a country that might be a currency user?
1: A country that might be a currency user?
0: Think think about where pizza came from. Italy. Anyone in the Eurozone is a currency user because they gave up their... Oh,
1: because they're, they're on the Eurozone, so the second most in debt country is Italy.
0: The reason why their economies are on the skids is because they're not the currency issuers, so that when they get debt, they can actually be forced to try and pay it back through austerity measures. So that's just to show you that there are different kinds of debt out there and you really want to be knowing what kind of debt you're talking about before you go running scared of it.
1: And understand what government debt is. It's different to private sector debt. Debt's not so scary when you don't have to pay it back. The conservative politicians always seem to like to uh, make us feel scared about the size of the debt that we have and how huge it is.
0: The Australian federal government does not have to pay back the dollars to anyone but itself, really. And so it can always issue some more if it needs to do that.
1: Incidentally, I think per capita would probably disagree with our definition of debt. We, we have some technical... Difference.
0: We love this discussion. It's we love great. this
1: discussion and we love what they're saying. We have some technical uh, differences, but uh, we're both heading in the same direction. This is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station, 3CR, with Anne and Kev, Unemployed Workers Fight Back Program. Great program. So myth number two from Per Capita is that a budget surplus is always good, a budget deficit is always bad. And their fact says, depending on the prevailing economic circumstances, budget surpluses can harm the economy and deficits can help.
0: Woohoo! On the money, that one.
1: This is a great discussion because the, the rhetoric from government after government, this is from both Labor and Liberal, they're chasing these surpluses. And one thing that I've learned through this whole MMT experience is, is to understand what that means.
0: I think we pretty much would agree with what they're saying and we want to blow open that surplus is good thing. Modern monetary theory doesn't say whether they're good or bad. So they're either useful or not useful depending on what your economy as a whole is doing. So the country that's always given as an example of where a surplus might be a good thing is Norway and that's because they're exporting a whole bunch of oil They've got a current account surplus, which means that it's better for them to run a surplus in their own domestic economy. But most economies throughout most of history are going to want to run a deficit because that is essentially the investment of money into the economy that enables the economy to happen. And that's that little circle in the big circle. The market can happen because the big circle is putting the money in there for it to happen.
1: Let's just summarise. A government surplus equals a private sector deficit. A government deficit equals a private sector surplus. Simple as that.
0: There's a little paragraph under this myth where they're talking about budget surplus good, budget deficit bad, and they've said, no, that's a myth. But then at the very end of their explanation, they say that as the government raises debt by issuing bonds, some degree of public debt is desirable for the private sector. Bill Mitchell always points out, and I think it's pretty hilarious, that when the government does run a surplus and the Australian government almost managed to achieve that and they did achieve it in recent memory.
1: The Howard government ran government surplus after government surplus which meant that the only way the private sector could expand was to borrow money so that's where the huge private sector debt came from in Australia. We have the the second highest debt levels in the world of private sector debt that came from the surpluses that the Howard Costello government ran because the only way you could expand your wealth was to borrow That's a consequence of running a government surplus.
0: When they are running a surplus here in Australia, if they're telling us that the reason they need to issue bonds is to pay for a deficit, then when you're in surplus, you'd think that the need to issue bonds would go away, wouldn't you? And what Bill Mitchell likes to say is that when they are running a surplus and yet they still kept issuing bonds that exposed why they're issuing bonds. And why do you think it was? It was so that the corporate sector could have safe assets. So in other words, it was welfare for the corporate sector. And so when they were running a surplus, it exposed their logic and exposed the fact that bonds are essentially corporate welfare.
1: So shall we knock the um, budget surplus deficit myth on the head?
0: His little legs are waving in the air. I think it's a goner. (laughs)
1: Okay, so now the next thing that they say, this is the per capita discussion paper says that the myth is that high public debt means the economy will be weak. And the fact is that public debt has very little impact on Australia's GDP growth.
0: You kind of covered that one, Kevin. We agree that a high public debt does not equal a weak economy. We agree with that. But we don't agree is that debt has no impact on GDP. And I think you pretty well covered that, Kevin.
1: Yeah, look, the only thing that my logic tells me about public debt and GDP is that public debt can have a very good impact on GDP. If you have government spending and it's assisting the economy to to be more productive, then that should be good for GDP. The exact relationship between a public sector debt... And GDP, I I honestly don't have the figures.
0: We're going to have to get an economist in for that one. Yeah. I notice under this myth that they've got this terrific diagram. It's a circle. We all love our circles in economics. And this one they're calling the virtuous circle of public investment. Uh, If you do get hold of this paper, I would just rename that one the irrelevant circle of public investment because, in fact, it's not telling us what goes on. (laughs) Sorry. Disagree with that diagram.
1: Now we get into the debt part of things.
0: This is my favourite myth of all. Can I read this one out? <laughs> I love this one. Myth. Our children and our children's children and our children's children children. And in fact, Kevin, your firstborn grandson, we're going to sell him to China. They will be paying off this debt for generations to come. Kevin, is that a fact or a fallacy?
1: Well, per capita says history shows this will not be the case. We we agree. We agree with Per Capita on that simple statement. I think we'd have a technical difference about why it's not the case. What Per Capita says is that after World War II, we had enormous debt and the next generations handled that debt very well because they had productive economies and therefore the debt was managed. As we've said earlier, we don't owe anybody any money. It's a technical term for consecutive deficits. So it's just an accounting term.
0: Do you feel like you're still paying off the World War II debt Kevin, has that been a drag on you lately?
1: Well, it makes me insensitive. <laughs> we just had Anzac Day and, and, and I, I failed to notice the, the debt from World War II.
0: <laughs> you failed to notice. <laughs> so anyway, uh, people are explaining what happened after World War II in different ways. We're going through this historical moment. And one of the ways people are trying to explain to themselves what's going on is by looking back at World War II because that's the last time we had a really big expenditure and so I'm noticing that everyone's trying to, as they say, capture the narrative. People are trying to capture that story and explain it according to whatever their understanding is of how an economy works. So what you'll see in this capita paper is they're explaining what happened after World War II. And I have to say, I think Kevin and I would disagree with that one. I'd love to get an economist in to go through it with us. I'm pretty sure that one of the ways you don't explain it is to say that the reason we're not still paying off the World War II debt is because it was a debt that needed to be paid off. It wasn't a debt that needed to be paid off because even under a fixed exchange rate, the government is the currency issuer.
1: Okay, so we go to the next myth that says, myth, Australia has just spent $200 billion on the stimulus. We don't need and can't afford to borrow anymore. They say the fact, the need for government spending has only just begun.
0: Hear, hear. So true.
1: What was interesting just recently was where we had Josh Frydenberg and Scott Morrison saying, We have to draw the line somewhere. And so they didn't cover the wages of casuals who'd Mm. been working for less than a year. They didn't cover the wages of people on visas working here. They just hung them out to dry. And they said, We have to draw the line somewhere.
0: Some of you are going to get thrown onto the scrap heap and some of you are going to be okay. Isn't that lovely, the way you can just distinguish who's going to be okay and not okay?
1: And they're saying that this is restricted by fiscal capability. It was never a fiscal line; It's an ideological line. Liars. What they're saying is is we don't care about you people enough. You guys aren't going to affect our re-election process by pretending that we are being fiscally responsible, we're probably going to look better so you guys can suffer in your jocks. There's nothing to stop them from looking after them financially. Bastards.
0: Capital says something else under this myth. They are saying, yes, the need for government spending has only just begun. One of the reasons they're saying that is because government bonds are so cheap at the moment. So that borrowing is essentially interest free for government. So it's a good time for them to be borrowing. And that's why the government can be spending more. What would you say to that, Kevin?
1: I'd say to that, Anne, that we need to go to a song, have a bit of a break and can start speaking about this whole misconception of bonds and debt, because it needs to be explained. we are going to swing to another song from Moaning Lisa, great band. And after that, we'll come back and we'll discuss this bond thing.
0: Florence, I want an Annie. I want a I want an Ellen. I want an Ellen and a
1: Carrie. 3 TR Community Radio, eight five five AM. okay so that was uh mining Lisa with Carrie I want a girl I love uh, mining Lisa and I went and saw him at the tote with my mate Pete uh, a little while ago and I saw him at the Lockhart music Festival last year as well just fantastic anyway so I was at the tote with Pete and I didn't understand the dynamic of the band mining Lisa it's the three girls and a guy and the, and the girls are they like girls so there's uh, Pete and myself we're two middle-aged white guys at the tote watching this band with a lot of girls who were there they weren't mean to us, but we sort of did feel a bit, a little bit unwelcome.
0: You did hold shoulder, were you?
1: (laughs) I guess people were sort of wondering, what the hell are you two old middle-aged white guys doing watching this band? they got nothing to do with you. And Pete and I became quite indignant. We we like them just as much as you do. So (laughs) we're going to still like them. Pushing
0: economic and social boundaries all the time, Kevin.
1: What we need to do now, Anne, is illustrate the disconnect between government bonds and government debt, because there's a lot of confusion about this.
0: The reason we're issuing bonds has got nothing to do with debt. How can that be?
1: (laughs) After World War II, we had a fixed exchange rate. A fixed exchange rate meant that you could have a certain amount of currency in your economy. If you had too much currency, it would knock your dollar up or down. If you had not enough currency, it would alter the value of the dollar. The mechanism that they used to extract currency from the economy, if there was too much currency there, was to sell government bonds that would suck currency out of the economy and therefore maintain that level of the dollar. So if the government spent money by building projects, it would then need to extract currency through government bonds and taxation to keep the dollar at that particular level.
0: Another way of saying that is that if you're in a fixed exchange rate, You are, as a government, actually constrained about how much spending you can do. This day and age, we're not in a fixed exchange rate, so we don't have to worry about how much spending we're going to do in terms of the value of the dollar. But back then, they were constrained by the value of the dollar.
1: So, what we're illustrating here is the connection between fiscal policy and government bonds. So, in the fixed exchange rate, Government bonds were used to maintain the value of the dollar by extracting currency from the economy. So, back in the fixed exchange rate days, there was a direct connection between government bonds and fiscal policy. 1983, Keating floats the dollar, that connection no longer exists. Now we don't need to use government bonds to manage the value of the dollar or fiscal policy. Now, government bonds only have to do with monetary policy.
0: Do you remember the big party back in 1983 when they floated the dollar and everyone ran out into the streets and went, yay, now monetary policy's got nothing to do with fiscal policy. Don't you remember that big party?
1: No, I do remember. I went went to... (laughs) I went to a pub um, once and uh, got into an altercation. Well, I didn't. I was I was a bystander <laughs> and ended up in the back of a divvy van, and that was on the night of that hawk, the hawk won the election. And, and we, we actually got let out of the lockup at about two o'clock in the morning. And there was a big Labour party. Never ask party.
0: what you can remember. I should never ask.
1: I remember that night, but I don't remember that. I don't remember the night they flooded the dollar. I just remember the night the hawk got in.
0: It's huge, huge thing, and nobody remembers it, and nobody knows how important it was.
1: I don't think people understood. I don't think Keating understood what what he was doing when he was floating the dollar, and this is becoming more and more apparent afterwards. What we can say just quite simply is this. When government bonds are sold now, it only affects monetary policy, and that's the policy at which money is lent. It, it has to do with interest rates. And so if you're trying to stimulate uh, lending you start worrying about government bonds in in that context. Government bonds has nothing to do with government spending. It has nothing to do with the amount the government raises to spend. It does that in the normal process which is by currency creation, by instructing the RBA to deposit funds wherever they need to be deposited. That's how it's been done for decades. People think this is a new thing. They say, oh, you're just printing money.
0: You've got to give everyone a bit of leeway on this because I think a lot of people still hold on to that notion that the issuing of bonds and government spending have got something to do with each other because they tend to happen at the same time. So people put one and one together and they get five.
1: (laughs) Yeah, We'll have to explain this more fully at some other time and check out Stephen Hale. Have a look at anything he has to say on this because he's a lecturer in economics at the University of Adelaide, specialises in training up bankers.
0: He can make future bankers sit up and take
1: notice. This is his field of expertise and he explains it very well. Don't take my word, don't take Anne's word, take the word of Stephen Hale and, and other economists. Anyway, so look, we've been talking about this per capita discussion paper and there's a theme developing here. So the last myth, it says the myth here, austerity measures will be needed to pay down the debt and they say the fact is austerity measures hinder rather than help economic recovery and make it harder to pay down the debt. Austerity measures aren't productive, and we've seen this across the board. You bring austerity measures in, and it just strangles economic growth.
0: They do say here, austerity measures hinder rather than help economic recovery. So we agree with that one. We're all on the same page there, literally.
1: Even though we might have technical disagreements with uh, per capita We agree with the direction of this paper.
0: The real problem is what we're starting to see already, the government starting to talk about how they're going to have to bring in austerity measures at the end of the lockdown. So what we want to be really clear about is that when they say that they are lying through their teeth and per capita realises this and we realise it and we're hoping that a lot more people realise it. So that the government doesn't have an excuse to roll back the JobKeeper payment. It doesn't have an excuse to start lopping down what's left of the forests in order to sell them. It doesn't have an excuse to start fracking the frickin' out of the Northern Territory. All those things that it's gearing up to do because it's saying that we need to pay back the debt. It's absolute rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Ooh, I just got on a soapbox then.
1: <laughs> and, and, and it was good, and I enjoyed it uh, immensely. Um, now, there's a lot of people who lie about this because they know, but I reckon there's a lot more people who aren't lying, who just are simply uninformed and don't understand. I would love uh, any of them who take issue with that comment to come and speak to us and have a discussion about this at some stage.
0: I'd love to talk about it,
1: You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of
0: unemployment and underemployment
1: here on 3CR Community Radio.
0: There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid. Explore the 3CR schedule online
1: at 3cr.org.au. It
2: makes me happy. Yes, this is our vibration. Vibration. Check out Music Sons Frontier.
0: Great Voices. Music Matters.
2: The Hip Sister Hopshaw.
1: The Heavy Session.
0: The Planet Radio Show. Satellite Skies. Shindig.
2: Sweet Dreams.
0: Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au.
1: Let our music make you happy. We've got this access to technology. We can just drag people in at whim when we want to. We both have a friend, fellow called uh, Joshua Dalton, who is uh, often helpful to speak about this stuff. We're not trained economists. We are lay people who take an interest in the economy, and so is Joshua.
0: So Josh is part of the wider community that is interested in modern monetary theory and what it says about the economy. Josh, are you there? We'd love to talk to you about all this debt stuff. Hi, Anne. How are you? Great. Josh could you tell us about how you came to be interested in economics as a non-economist?
2: My main thrust into caring about what is the dismal science is the fact that I am actually by trade a scientist. And during the period of Tony Abbott's first government in 2013, I was doing my PhD research. Tony Abbott was elected. He was elected on a mantra that debt is terrible, deficits are terrible, Australia will sink into the ocean if we don't get all of this unmanageable debt that Labour has left us with under control. As part of his solution to managing the debt, and I say that with quotation marks, Nobel Prize winning chemists at the CSIRO, were fired. And so as an aspiring scientist, it doesn't paint a particularly promising picture I started to wonder, well, what is this debt actually? Who do we owe it to? Why are we all so concerned about it? And the further I dug into it, the more complicated and obscure and disorientating the rhetoric became about debt, which is when I stumbled upon this new economic framework for understanding how economies function called Monumentary Theory, which seems to offer a more coherent and rational framework for understanding how governments spend and intervene in the economy and support the economy.
1: That's pretty much the uh, the purpose of this show, Joshua, is for lay people to have an understanding of the economic environment that they live in. And we're living in this society which just seems mean-spirited. We certainly saw that during the Abbott years, which was uh, underpinned with this whole philosophy that we've got debt and there's doom and disaster and we need to slash and burn. And people seem to forget this is the same government that was elected, there hasn't been any break. It's the same Liberal government, the same ministers, it has the same continuity, and it started off with this uh, rhetoric of debt and deficit, the, this this doom and gloom that was going to be left for our children and our grandchildren. There's all this talk about debt, but who do we owe it to?
2: That is a good question.
1: If you listen to economists and journalists and politicians, we issue debt to pay for government spending. That's the current belief. And the way that we issue debt to pay for government spending is to sell government bonds.
2: Oh, yes. The Australian government has to issue bonds in order to get Australian dollars to then spend Australian dollars. But then you sort of take that a step back by a year and then another year and you go back and you have to wonder, well, where did those Australian dollars for the first bond sale come from? Treasury is
1: selling bonds into what's known as the primary market, and those bonds are being bought by the banks. The banks then sell those bonds to the Reserve Bank in the secondary market. So the Reserve Bank is buying up the bonds that Treasury issued. And so you have this bizarre circular transaction with the government where it sells bonds through Treasury and then buys them through the Reserve Bank. This exposes how currency is created by the Reserve Bank entering keystrokes into a computer, not by Treasury issuing and selling bonds.
0: Someone asked Josh here, can you explain why they're doing it if it just seems so bizarre?
2: The government is effectively selling bonds to itself with a middleman of banks in the process. And the questions about why it's doing it relate to understanding of the conventional macroeconomic framework The government sells bonds to these primary market dealers, these wholesalers, who acquire these bonds and then sell them back to the government at a higher price and make a profit off it. So it's great for commercial banks. For the government, though, what it's doing is it's putting additional what they call reserves into the banking system. Because under the conventional understanding, if you put reserves into the system, what will happen is that banks will loan out those reserves. And if you're giving out loans, you're effectively generating economic activity and you're pushing up aggregate demand, which is what they're trying to accomplish.
1: If what you're talking about is that the Reserve Bank is putting reserves into the private banking system, what we're talking about is monetary policy.
2: Yes, that's correct.
1: But that's not the issue at the moment. The issue at the moment has to do with government spending, and that's fiscal policy.
2: This is all about monetary policy. And monetary policy is effectively about trying to control how banks lend. What the Reserve Bank is hoping to accomplish by buying these bonds from commercial banks is to put additional reserves into the system because they think that will mean the banks have more money that they can lend out to other people. And it's this phenomenon known as the money multiplier effect. If banks have deposits, they give out loans, someone who gets that loan then spends that money, which means another bank gets the money, which they can then loan out again, and so on and so forth. And in effect, what the Reserve Bank is trying to do is trying to promote an increase in activity, which will push up the inflation rate to the target rate that it wants, which is between 2 and 3%.
1: So what you're saying is that the Reserve Bank is trying to promote the commercial banks to lend, which would require people borrowing money. But in the current environment, nobody's borrowing money because everything's so uncertain. I mean all, all businesses are shut down. They're not borrowing money.
2: That is exactly correct. And you also have to consider the fact that Australia has the world's second highest private debt level. We're already saturated to our eyeballs in debt and we're drowning in it. And the idea that people will just take on more debt until the point they crush themselves is is ludicrous.
1: An actual effect of this would be that if a business did have some form of income at the moment and everybody's been knocked sideways, they're not going to borrow new money. They're probably just going to pay down their existing debt. Now, that's not going to stimulate the economy.
2: Yeah, that's correct. It'll make the business's balance sheet look healthier, but it's not going to create new jobs or activity anyway. No one's going to be selling extra goods to that business as a consequence of the business paying down its debt.
1: So let's make this absolutely clear. The selling of government bonds does not fund government spending. It has nothing to do with funding government projects, It's just got to do with trying to make lending more attractive.
2: Yeah, that's correct. So in earlier periods, monetary policy and issuing bonds was all about trying to control the international exchange rate, for example. But it's never at any point been about finding the money to fund the federal government spending.
0: So here you are,
1: too foreign for home. Too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebino, Diaspora Blues.
0: What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan
2: not
1: Good by Money and Lisa. When I say that was good, that, that's the name of the song. The song's called Good. It's a good song, but it's also called Good. Uh, and it's off a little EP called Do You Know Enough, which I picked up off Bandcamp. It cost less than 10 bucks. It was, like, cheap. If you've got two bob to, uh, in your pocket at the moment, if you've got any any uh, spare cash, get behind good local bands. Go and buy their product online. Keep, keep them afloat while we're in this downturn. Anyway, we're going to get back to our conversation with... Joshua Dalton, uh, who we spoke to a short time ago. I'll tell you one thing I don't understand, Joshua, is that I'm a home handyman. None of us are economists. How come we can understand that buying and selling of bonds has only to do with monetary policy, that these transactions have no effect on funding a $200 billion stimulus or survival package, and yet we have economists, journalists, and politicians all banging on about the debt that we're going to have to pay that's incurred from the bonds that we are selling to fund the spending. For the life of me, I don't understand why people who are supposed to be experts in the field don't understand this.
2: At least part of the answer comes down to this phenomenon called groupthink, which is effectively when you're in a, a small community, you all propagate self-reinforcing views. And shaking that fundamental bedrock of how you view the world is an incredibly difficult challenge. Take, for example, my own profession. I'm a chemist. Now, I've never once bothered to verify whether atoms actually exist because I take it on good faith that those who've come before me have put in the hard yards and have also been credible in their assertions about how those fundamental building blocks work. For me now to go back and question that is actually it's a really big ask.
0: Joshua, this story is making me laugh because I'm thinking about how, what if you had chemistry that was based on ether? The people who believed in ether, they're like the monetrists now.
2: (laughs) Or medicine, for example. There used to be this perception that, you know, you fell ill because of evil spirits in the air. And it wasn't until hardworking scientists like John Snow in England, the guy who fought a lifetime struggle to point out that actually, maybe there's something else going on here.
0: It's pretty scary, isn't it, when you think that the country's being run by a bunch of people who believe in witchcraft.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is terrifying. Interestingly,
1: Anne, the first interview we did on this show was with a fellow called Duncan Wallace who had studied economics and he told us that there's now an international group of students who are openly revolting against the curriculum because they recognise that what they're being taught is a
2: load of garbage. We can all very clearly see evidence that these mainstream models aren't working the way they should be. Take, for example, with Japan. So Japan is a country which has, I think it's about 250% of its GDP, i.e. its national income, as government debt. Now, the mainstream would say that Japan should have sunk into the ocean like Atlanta by now. It should have gone bankrupt, there should be chaos, and everyone should be destitute. But right now, they have some of the lowest unemployment levels in the OECD, They've been funding deficits far larger than our own in Australia for the last 40 years. They're existing perfectly well. Despite what's been taught by
1: orthodox economists, Japan is surviving. Orthodox economists tell us that if governments run deficits, it will be inflationary. Yet what we've seen in the last 50, 60, 70 years is deficit after deficit with flat inflation. So the theories that orthodox economists have been taught are being proven to be factually incorrect.
2: Economics like most disciplines, is actually an evolving subject. And part of the problem is some assertions which were once true, no longer apply now. So like talking about how if you spend too much money, we'll devalue the currency. Well, you can only devalue the currency if it's actually fixed in a ratio against something. So back when Australia used to be on fixed exchange rates, you could run that risk. But the problem is, Keating floated the dollar, which meant we got rid of any, like, anchor tying the Australian dollar down. And yet we're all still acting as if that anchor is there.
0: They're all acting like they're still traumatised by being on a fixed exchange rate. They're all still in that trauma. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with Kevin and myself today, Josh. And before we let you go, would you just like to let us know about the
2: group that you're involved with that looks at all this crazy economic stuff? I'm part of a group called Mon Money Australia, which is a national incorporated association that's built around trying to promote this awareness of how economies actually work. We run monthly forums or online webinars right now with COVID-19. We invite actual economists to come and speak to us to explain these ideas. And it's all about improving your understanding of how governments work, because then you can ask the right questions of your government when it comes to the policy choices that they make. I think that's a really important thing for the health of our society.
0: How can people get in contact with the group?
2: So you can find us on the internet via our website, which is www.modernmoneyaustralia.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter via again our handle of Modern Money Australia. We also run a discussion group on Facebook. We run a have a YouTube channel where our previous lectures and presentations have been recorded and uploaded to. Full
0: disclosure: I think Kevin and I might have been to a few of those events.
1: Thanks, Josh, for joining us this week. Very much appreciate it.
0: Thanks a lot, Josh.
1: Thank you for having me on. Hey, Kevin. Yeah. I've
0: got a question for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the other day, the way you were speaking is I felt like that you were having a bit of an existential crisis. So I just wanted to know how you're going with that. Why are we here?
1: Why we are here, Anne, is because because we're trying to understand the economy. And the reason we're trying to understand the economy is because it reflects who we are as a society. By understanding the economy, we we are understanding how it's been hijacked by People running an agenda which does not reflect the society that you or I want to live in, Anne. We want to live in a society where that's socially inclusive, where people look after each other. And to end this nasty neoliberal ideology that's taken over our economy, uh, it's a, an experiment in economics that's proven to have failed because it leaves so many people behind. And right now we have a crisis and things change. We've now got this COVID-19 crisis and people are questioning how our economy works because it doesn't reflect who we want to be as a society.
0: Well, I got to agree with you that I think this lockdown moment is a great moment to press the reset button.
1: And and, uh, and set things right. Okay, and uh, we've run out of time. It's the, uh, it's the end of the show. It's been a nice, nice review show this week. Do you know what we've got uh, coming up for our next show?
0: we're going to have Bill Mitchell back again for the second part of the interview that we did with him.
1: Oh, cool, Roddy. I remember that conversation. He was talking a bit about his past. It was all very nice and homey because he's a Melbourne boy. That'll be the next show coming up. Now, we've got to get out of the way because Mafalda's coming up. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. The show's available on podcast from the 3CR website. Tell your friends about it. We're trying to change the world. Uh, We're out of here. We'll catch you in a couple of weeks time. See you, Anne. See you, Kevin.
0: been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back.
1: Join us the second Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR.
0: We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Kevin.
1: And I thank you, Anne. The pleasure was all mine.
0: Oh, no, I insist the pleasure was mine.
1: Well, it wasn't all yours. I mean, I had a fair degree of pleasure on this show. It was a very pleasurable for me.
0: Oh, no, Kevin. I was highly pleasured.
1: You looked like you were having fun, and it looked very pleasing to you, but I'm just wondering whether I had more fun than you know did, because you I had, you had you a lot of fun. It was been very been pleasurable I have